This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Good to be with you folks. Um, we're going to take a look at the Lord's Prayer right now. I'm just going to review it with you. And uh, then we're going to dive right into the Lord's Prayer. It's found in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us, they, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Oddly, this uh, prayer, one of the most popular prayers in the Bible, has sort of uh, maybe fallen out of favor in our day, and we don't say it very much. I don't know if it's something where we are afraid we're going to overuse it and it's going to lose its meaning or what, but uh, we don't really focus much on the Lord's Prayer anymore. Kind of the same way with communion. I think sometimes we're afraid that, well, if we, if we have communion too many times, it will become meaningless. And uh, so the Lord's Prayer, uh, communion, things like that, we maybe kind of have shied away from, but we need to dive back into and learn from. Um, I know it's been true in my own ministry. I've gone years and years and probably never preached on prayer um, I've pastored in uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota and Missouri, and uh, well, I can just remember large stretches of time when I've never even talked about the Lord's Prayer or prayer in general. So that's what we're going to dive in today. And that right from the start, we need to remind ourselves here that when Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, He's not teaching us so much what to say, but how to say it. This is kind of a... a um, Lesson, a sort of a Sunday school lesson in how to pray. Um, so he's not saying, okay, here are exactly the words I want you to say. He's saying, this is how I want you to approach prayer. Luke, by the way, gives us the context in which this prayer was um, developed. Luke 11.1. 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, what does that tell you about the disciples? They didn't know how to pray. They were with Jesus every day. They walked the countryside with Jesus. They saw him heal the lame. They saw him give sight to people who were blind. They saw miracle after miracle and sermon after sermon, and they were with Jesus all the time. But they said, you know, Jesus... We don't really get this prayer thing. Teach us to pray. I don't know how to do it. It's okay to admit to God you are not good at prayer. It's okay. None of us are. All right? Nobody is good at prayer. And neither were the disciples. So how do we pray? Well, number one, I think we need to start with God. That's what Jesus does. Don't start with yourself, start with God. Whether it's a topic, a debate, uh, you're leading a Sunday school class, you're witnessing to an unbeliever, uh, you're uh, leading your family in prayer, whatever you do, always start with God. And that's what Jesus does. He says, okay, guys, let's, let's talk about prayer here. When you pray, here's, here's what you do. You start out this way. Our Father who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. That word hallowed simply means to, be, to treat as holy. Treat with reverential respect. Holiness is really the capstone of what God is and who he is. To be holy means to be pure. It also means to be different. Different in a good way. God is just on a whole different level than us. It's not that he is just a little bit better than us, or he's kind of just like us, but just in a greater degree. No, he is totally different than us. We tend to think of God this way, you know, I'm kind of loving, so I bet you God is really loving. Uh, I know right from wrong. Boy, God really knows right from wrong. Uh, I I try to be uh, patient with people. Boy, God is really patient. So really, when we think of God, it's just like God is just kind of a souped up version of me. No. God is not a souped up version of me. He is totally, totally different. At such a high, holy, exalted way that we sometimes just can't even comprehend how great he is. So when we say that God is holy, we mean he is apart, set apart, he's different, he's good. His thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. And that is good news. So this phrase... Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, is sort of a way of orienting ourselves, you know. Uh, When I walk into a city, fly into a city, we go up to the counter to rent a car, the first thing I ask the rental car lady is this, can I have a map of this area? Because when I drive out of that airport, I have got no idea where I am. I need to get to a motel or somewhere, and I don't know where I am. So the first thing I say, ma'am, can I have a map of this town or a map of the airport? Can, Can you just get me out of here? Can you get me out of the parking lot? I think that's what Jesus is trying to do here. He's trying to get us out of the parking lot. He's trying to orient us in our prayers. And he says, this is how I want you to start. Just pray, God, uh, in this prayer, help me to treat your name as holy. Um... Get me oriented. Old timers sometimes would use the phrase, the Latin phrase, quorum Deo. They would say, we live quorum Deo. And it just basically means in the presence of or before the face of God. Uh, we are always in his presence. Uh, whether you uh, take a trip or hide under your bed or go to the other side of the world or fly to the moon or whatever you do, you are never out of the presence of God. He is omnipresent, he's always with you, he's always in control, and he always knows everything about you. For some of you, that freaks you out. I'll tell you, a woman that got freaked out was the woman at the well. Woo! Did she get smoked? Uh, Woman at the well, wonderful story. I spent a lot of time studying her this week, and boy, uh, Jesus knew everything about her. Uh, He knew her inside and out, and he ended up saving her. At one point in the conversation, and she's kind of feisty. She kind of jumps around from topic to topic, and she tries to change the topic, and she tries to introduce stuff that has nothing to do with anything. And uh, uh, at one point, Jesus says, well, before we go any farther, why don't you go get your husband, bring him here, and let's get this thing ironed out. She says, I've got no husband. There's no need to talk about my husband. Let's get back to, to serious topics. I've got no husband. She didn't throw Jesus off. He wasn't falling for that line. Jesus says, you're right, ma'am, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with right now is not your husband. 
So, you, what you said is true. What would you do if a, woman, uh, if a total stranger came up to you, I mean a total stranger, and told you everything about your life? I would probably freak out. And that's exactly what happened to that woman. Can you imagine how she felt at that point? This guy knows everything about me. And I'm not exaggerating, and I'll prove it to you here in just a second. At one point, she was sent by Jesus back into town. She left her water jug there, and she said this in John 4, 29. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, the neat thing here is that for her, this did not freak her out. She got excited. You know, she said she realized that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that she had been waiting for, and it was kind of like, finally he's come. So Jesus was super kind to this woman. He called her out, but he also called her in to a relationship with himself, and she was saved. Now, what does all this have to do with prayer? Well, for one thing, it tells us that God knows our needs better than we do. We think we know what we need, but we often don't. God is better at answering than we are at praying. There have been several times down through the years where I have prayed fervently for something, and it didn't happen, didn't come true. Uh, two, three, four, five years pass. I've totally forgotten about the prayer. I've moved on with my life. And then something happens and I hear about a situation and I think, oh man, I, I prayed about that like five years ago. Oh, Jesus, thank you for not, not answering my prayer. You ever been there? You ever had that happen? You are so thankful that God did not answer your prayer or you would be in one heck of a mess right now. He knows how to answer better than you know how to pray. Jesus doesn't always give us what, he, what we want, but he does give us what we need. You see, the Samaritan woman wanted this living water that Jesus was talking about. It kind of fascinated her. And Jesus was talking about, you know, I've got a water that if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. And, and uh, she thought, hmm, this, this is intriguing. This, that, that would mean that I don't have to come to this well anymore. I don't have to come here 12 noon in the middle of the day so I avoid all the other women in town. Nobody went to the well, by the way, at 12 noon. You either went to the well early in the morning or early in the evening. You didn't go out in the middle of the day, go across the, the little desert there from Sychar to Jacob's well to get water. He did not do that in the middle of the day. Why did she do that then? She was avoiding people. She didn't want to see people. So the well meant being in the public. She didn't want to be in the public. The well meant meeting other people. She didn't want to meet other people. Uh, the well meant being exposed. She didn't want to be exposed. So when Jesus comes along and says, hey, I got some water, this living water, and you'll never thirst again. And she's thinking, yes, I won't have to come back to this well. And so she's, she's kind of drawn to Jesus for the wrong reasons. She still doesn't get it. She has no idea what he's talking about. But at first it's kind of like, yeah, I... Uh, maybe I can get into this living water thing. And uh, 
But Jesus, of course, was outsmarting her all along. He, she wanted to run away and, and kind of live her own life. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to run you down here and then I'm going to save you. Um, she wanted to avoid her sin and Jesus wanted to expose her sin. Uh, Jesus wanted to, she wanted to stay as she was and Jesus wanted to, to change her and he did. So the disciples come to Jesus one day and say, all right, Jesus, teach us to pray. We don't get it. And he said, okay, here we go. You start out, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When you pray that prayer to kick off your prayers, you're kind of orienting yourself to his greatness, his power, his majesty. Uh, You're basically saying, before I, I utter another word, Lord, I just want you to know that I know you're calling the shots here. You know what you're doing. And I want to bow before you before I go another minute into my prayer. I want to bow before you and submit to your will. Now just think about this. This this prayer, hallowed be thy name, is a prayer about God, but which has to be applied by us. It's like you're praying, may your name be treated as holy in my life and in this prayer that's about ready to follow. Have you ever thought about trying to be holy in your prayers? When we think about holiness, we usually think about our thought life. You know, I need to be holy in my thought life. Uh, we think about uh, the internet. You know, when I visit this internet site or that internet site, I need to try to be holy and pick good sites to visit. Uh, when we think about holiness, we think about our conversations and the jokes that we listen to and you got to be holy here. And we think about, when we think about holiness, we think about the music we listen to and the podcast we listen to and, and, uh, and uh, the language that comes out of our mouth. And all, all of that's true. It's true you need to be holy in all of those areas. You need to treat God's name as holy in all of those areas. But have you ever thought about this? Your prayers need to treat God's name as holy. That's kind of, to me, I, I thought that was kind of revolutionary. Like, whoa, I never thought about the fact that I could be unholy in my prayers. Yeah, you can be. So Jesus says, hey, before you go anywhere, well, let's start out here with step one. Uh, in this prayer, Lord, may your name be treated as holy. Okay. Um, how do you do that? Well, you just remember that God knows your needs better than you do. You remember that, you're, that he answers better than you can pray. You remember that he's calling the shots. You remember that even though God knows everything about you, just like the Samaritan woman, that's not bad news. Most people, when they find out that God knows all about them, just kind of freak out. This woman did not freak out. Somehow for her, it was kind of like, whoa, there's something different here. And God changed her heart. God changed her mind. God, you know, Jesus probably talked about forgiveness. And, and we're going to talk about forgiveness later. And it was just kind of like her heart was revolutionized. So don't be freaked out by the fact that God knows you. I mean, this is not exactly front page news. Everybody knows deep down that God knows everything. And I think also by orienting your prayers towards God's holiness right out of the gate you're reminding yourself of how big God is. Pastor Joe often kids me about the fact that I 
uh, always talk about space, galaxies, stars, and things like that. And so I will not disappoint him, and I will talk about those things very briefly. I want to talk about our neighborhood, the neighborhood where we live. Um, we do have a neighborhood we live in here in the universe, and I'll give you its name in just a minute. In a lot of large cities throughout the country, people refer to their living space not as a city or as a suburb, but as a neighborhood. Our daughter recently was with her husband and her children out in Los Angeles, and they were visiting some friends. They were not too far from the ocean, in fact, not too far from LAX airport. And uh, and one time uh, we were talking to her over the internet, and I said something like, Kristen, where where exactly are you? What, what, What town are you in? And she says, oh, I don't know, Dad. I'm in this neighborhood. And then she named the name of the neighborhood. I don't know what it was, Los Palos Heights or something like that. And I said, so where exactly are you? Well, I'm in this neighborhood. Well, I'm going to talk to you today about our neighborhood. The neighborhood we live in here in the universe is called the Milky Way. Okay? Now, this is a fairly large neighborhood. It is estimated that in our little neck of the woods here, this little neighborhood, we have about 200 billion stars just in our neighborhood. That's 200 billion suns, you might say. It doesn't include moons or planets or asteroids or space debris. debris. 200 billion stars. That's sort of a medium-sized galaxy as far as the universe goes. But to get from one side of our Milky Way to the other side of our Milky Way, one side of the neighborhood to the next side of the neighborhood, it would take a beam of light 100,000 years. That's six, starts with a T, six trillion miles. That's just our neighborhood. That's just our neighborhood. Now, here's the thing that's going to freak you out. You're not going to be freaked out by your neighborhood. You're going to be freaked out by the universe. Because we don't, what we don't realize is that within our universe, there are about 2 trillion neighborhoods just like ours. Some of them bigger, some of them large, uh, smaller. 2 trillion galaxies. God is in comprehensibly large and powerful and I would add good and you might say but where does this lead me where in the world is in all of this vast universe where is where, where do I come into this whole thing how do I fit what does this have to do with my prayer life the answer is better than you think you know where you are right now right in the palm of God's hand I'm going to prove it to you. Isaiah 57, 15. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Is it possible that this God who 
exercises authority over trillions of galaxies and an expanse of space we can't even comprehend. Is it possible that that God could live with and minister to a poor, confused, exhausted, destitute widow in El Dorado Springs, Missouri? Is that possible? Yes. Is it possible that that same God could live with and encourage a teenage boy, about 14 years old, goes to the local high school, being bullied every day, has one parent, parent works nights, he's living by himself, doesn't know where the next meal is coming from, has no friends, is as lonely as you could be at the most vulnerable point in his life. He's 14 years old. Is it possible that God can live with that young teenage boy? Yes. He's big, but he's not impersonal. Now, he, 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 he knows you. He knows you better than he knows the Samaritan woman. He knows what you need. And when you pray, he hears and he answers. And he, he doesn't give you what you want always, but he gives you what you need. He's a good God. A very, very good God. So the disciples saying, Lord, Lord, please teach us to pray. Okay, guys, start with God. Number two, stay with God. Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think the tendency at this point in the prayer is to think, well, I'm done with God's holiness. I'm done orienting myself. I'm done with the introduction. I'm done with, done with praise and adoration and all that stuff. And, and it's time for me to dig into my stuff. I want to talk about me. I want to talk about, you know, my prayer requests. So, so let's get going, Jesus. And Jesus says, hold on, hold, slow down here. Let's, let's stay focused on God in our prayers. So he urges us to make God's plans our plans. Instead of coming to God with, with a set of uh, kind of our agenda and saying, here's my agenda, God, please bless it. God, no, Jesus, don't do that. God's not interested in your agenda. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it has to start where on earth? Right here. So basically you're just praying May your kingdom come in my life. May your rule come in my life. When you hear about a kingdom, it implies a king. And the question is, is God your king? I know he's your creator. I know he's your savior. You all, most of you folks believe in God. But the $64,000 question is this. Is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? Is he your king? So this prayer, once again, is about God's plan being fulfilled in my life. I mean, what good is it to pray for uh, America to change when you're not willing to change? What good is it for us to pray that, uh, you know, America will come back to God when we're not willing to come back to God? You know, we've we got to start with ourselves, okay? Uh, we want God's kingdom and God's rule to reign supreme in our lives. Well, it's not till you get to Matthew 6, 11 that you finally get to the point where you get down to some personal prayer request. Matthew 6, 11. Give us this day 
our daily bread. Finally, we get to talk about my needs. Get to talk about me. But oddly enough, this is one part of the prayer which most Americans cannot relate to. Why? Because most of us don't worry about our daily bread. Most of us don't go to the store every day to buy food because we have refrigerators. We have freezers. We have pantries. And we just can't, it's like, boy, this is just like an out of a different planet. Give us this daily, our daily bread. I just don't relate to that. Well, the people in the days of Jesus, they did relate to it. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have freezers. They didn't have a lot of extra money. Jesus was talking to poor people. And so they had, you know, if you wanted to eat back in the days of Jesus, you went shopping every day. There were no credit cards, so you needed cash. So every day you got up, tried to come up with enough cash to go to the store to get enough food, to have enough supplies to feed your family. So people back then, yeah, they get that verse. We don't. That verse just goes, doesn't connect, can't relate, don't know what in the world Jesus is talking about. But I think there's probably more going on here than just physical food. Isn't it interesting that just in a few pages over, Jesus is going to start talking about him being the bread of life. And uh, he basically is probably saying, you know what you need is me. You might remember the story of feeding the 5,000. People are really getting into Jesus because they got the meal. And then they start following Jesus around the countryside, hoping that the next day they get another meal. And, you know, Jesus said, hey, guys, you know, hey, I know you had your fill. You had all the loaves and all the fish. I fed 5,000 people. I get it. Uh, And now you're hungry again. But, uh, folks, what you've got to realize here is that uh, what you really need is uh, not my uh, miracles. What you really need is me. I am the bread of life. So you go in the Old Testament from the manna to the New Testament with the loaves and the fish, and all along Jesus is saying, now what you really need is me. You need to feed on me. I'm the main supplier of your needs. Now there's going to be a lot of other vendors out there. There's a lot of vendors in the world promising to be your bread of life. Social media, it promises to feed your soul. You just can't resist that latest post from your friend on Instagram. Oh, it's a picture of all our kids. You know, isn't it wonderful? And then you spend a good part of your day on Instagram. There's other vendors. The internet itself, it promises to entertain your mind and to answer your questions. You know, if it's on the internet, it must be true, right? Yeah, I Googled it. Yeah, it's, well, maybe not. There are other vendors like television, music, movies, and YouTube. Everybody everywhere wants to be your bread of life, and it doesn't work that way. Those things will not keep you satisfied. Those things will not feed your soul. I discovered a verse in the Bible where 
God sounds like a modern-day counselor. I've always thought words like satisfaction, contentment, peace, self-actualization. I always thought those were sort of psychological terms that applied to today. I was discovered. I, was, I, I discovered this week, I was kind of shocked this week, to find out that God was talking about stuff like that 700 years before Jesus was born. Satisfaction? Fulfillment? Conti- are you serious? Those are modern terms. The Bible doesn't talk. Well, apparently it does talk about that. Isaiah 55, 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? This is God talking to the people. It's kind of like, what are you guys doing here? Why are you spending your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Have you ever thought about this? God is interested in you being satisfied with life. He wants you to be fulfilled. Jesus himself said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So modern sounding. It's kind of trendy. It's actually not trendy. God talked about it long before Jesus was born. He wants his people to be satisfied. The problem is we're looking in the wrong places. comes from Jesus. So how do we do this? How do we feed ourselves on Jesus? Isaiah 55 to B. Listen. Listen to me. And eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Hungry? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And, and I know it's hard. I know it is hard to learn to feed yourself on Jesus. I've spent my whole life trying to do this. But it's just a discipline you have to develop within yourself to, to encourage yourself, to feed yourself, to fulfill yourself, to find your happiness, contentment, and satisfaction in Him. I am not saying this is easy. I'm just saying it's true. All those other venues, all those other vendors will eventually leave you hungry and dissatisfied. So you may not need to go to the store every day for your daily bread, but you do need to go to Jesus every day for his daily bread. And of course, in prayer, there's always this need to remember our relationships. And so Jesus kind of now jumps into relationships and talking about prayer. You know, what's he talking about? Is he going to talk about relationships or is he going to talk about prayer? Well, it's both. The two are connected. And what Jesus is saying here is your prayers aren't going to get off the ground floor if you've got bad relationship problems. And so he kind of launches into this whole idea of relationships from the perspective of forgiveness. And there's kind of a vertical aspect of forgiveness and a horizontal aspect of forgiveness. And this is kind of how it works. God forgives us, and we need to forgive others. Matthew 6, 
12. Now we're still in the middle of this, the Lord's Prayer, okay? We're still talking about prayer. So here, here's how we should pray. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Big question is, have you forgiven your debtors? Have you forgiven people who have harmed you deeply? This is a whole different sermon. I've got a whole talk I do on what forgiveness is and what it's not. I don't have time to get into it now. It's a huge topic. But forgiveness is something we need to make front and center in what we're doing in our prayers. Forgiveness is essentially letting go of the anger, frustration, irritation, and it's letting go of that desire for revenge. The desire to get back at people. And if there's a problem here with you and somebody else, it's going to hinder your prayers. Sometimes I think people um, try to get revenge by being bitter. So let me talk to you a little bit about bitterness. If you're sitting there in your house and you're bitter uh, against somebody uh, here in town and you're mad with them and you're sitting there on your couch and you're stewing and you're fuming and you're letting your rage kind of simmer... Who's suffering at that moment? Is it the guy across town who offended you? No. He's not suffering. You are. When you are bitter, you're the one that suffers. And it just doesn't solve anything. It doesn't do anything. Um... You know, this really kind of gets even more discouraged. I, I hate to break it to you, but that guy across town, that gal across town that you're mad at, that really offended you, they not only probably don't realize that you're hurting, they don't realize they've hurt you, they don't realize they've offended you, and this is where it gets bad. Even if they do realize they've done that to you, they don't care. You say, well, Dennis, that's an awfully insensitive, cruel thing to say. People don't care about me. Yeah, it's true. Now, I know in the Christian world, we're supposed to care about people. And hopefully, if you know, you've got a problem with a Christian, there's some guilt going on, there's some conflict going on, and you eventually iron things out. But if you're like me, you live in a non-Christian world. I, I rub shoulders with non-Christians all the time. I can tell you they really don't give a rip about you. It's kind of cruel, isn't it? But it's true. The non-Christian world does not care that you are bitter. God cares. And he wants to heal you. He wants to help you. He wants to help you work through this. And that's why he wants you to try to slowly let go of some of that bitterness. I know it's not easy. I've done enough counseling to know that there have been things done to people down through the years that are catastrophic in nature. 
And I use this illustration, and I don't know if it's, a, it's probably not a biblical illustration, but sometimes people in my groups will say something like, well, Dennis, how in the world do I forgive somebody for this or somebody for this? And I, you know, it's this talk on, on forgiveness, it doesn't make sense to me, or you're just being unrealistic. There's no way I could ever forgive somebody for what they've done to me. I don't know if this is a good illustration, but I, it's the elephant illustration. I say, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, and I just try to encourage people to just take one little bite at a time. Just try to forgive someone a little bit today. And tomorrow, get up and try to do the same thing. Now, maybe by the grace of God, you can just forgive them all at once, and that is great if you can do that. But I realize that there are people out there that have been damaged and hurt in ways I can't even imagine. So I'm not trying to be flippant here. I'm not trying to pass this off as something that's easy. In fact, the talk I give in my groups on forgiveness is probably the hardest talk I give. But it's one that people really need to hear. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Because God has forgiven me so much, I need to forgive others. I know you've, some of you people have heard this old definition of bitterness, but it's, it's kind of a, a good one. It's kind of funny, but it's not really funny at all. Bitterness is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. I'm sitting across the table with somebody and I have an argument with them. And right in the middle of the table, there's two pounds of rat poison. As I'm having this argument with this person, I'm sitting there and I'm eating this rat poison. After that argument's over, I've completely finished off and eaten the two pounds of rat poison. I stand up, I look at this guy and I say, die. Guess who's going to die? It isn't going to be him. That's what bitterness does to us. Eats us alive. Eats us alive. Jesus said, or the disciples said, teach us to pray. So we've been in the Lord's classroom here today. We've learned to start with God and to stay with God. And finally, we could just say, number three, we could just sort of summarize or finish with God. Finishing our prayers with something like, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. You're in control. You love me. You've got me in the palm of your hand. You have a plan for my life. I don't always understand what's going on but you're still there for me every day. We're all somewhere in the school of prayer. Some of us are first graders. Some of us are second graders. Some of us might be in high school. I'm certainly not, but some of you might be in grad school. I don't know. But we all need to learn every day with Jesus in the school of prayer. Jesus, teach us to pray. I was in a school learning how to swim one time. It was in my hometown and every summer they would have swimming classes and uh, I would uh, 
go down to the swimming pool every day, and they taught us a whole bunch of stuff. They taught us how to breathe properly and on all of the strokes and how to hold our breath and how to go underwater and how to float and all these kinds. They taught us all kinds of things. And every summer I was in a different class, so I worked my way up and into life-saving and things like that. Uh, but you know, there's one thing I don't think they ever gave me, at least not in those early years. They never gave me a uh, book. No, I would just show up every morning. They'd say, all right, jump in the pool. We're going to learn how to swim. Sometimes that's the way it is with prayer. You know, you know sometimes you, know, you can hear sermon after sermon and read book after book on prayer, and you finally realize, man, there's no, there's no real secret to this. I'm just going to have to jump in and start praying. You're never going to learn how to swim unless you start swimming. You're never going to learn how to bike, run, ride a bike until you start riding the bike. And you're never going to learn how to pray until you just start praying. I wish I could make it easier, but I can't. But with God's grace and God's help, I think we can become people of pray. Pray for our, our uh, church. Uh, pray for our pastors. Uh, pray for our church ministries. Um, make prayer a serious part of your daily ministry in the lives of other people. Okay? Let's close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Uh, this lesson, uh, this uh, school of prayer, we've, we've found here in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. Um, all we can say is, Lord, just continue to teach us, continue to help us struggle through, and, and help us just to kind of jump in the water and start swimming, start praying. And, and tr- we just trust, Lord, that as we do that, as we pray more and more, you will teach us more and more and make us more and more dependent upon you and make us more and more close to you and and you will make us eventually people of prayer. Thank you for this day, Lord. We've had so much good worship, good singing, good good music, and it's just been a good spirit here, Lord, and we thank you for it. We love you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. You have have a good day, a good week. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.